you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. Hello, and welcome to your next dive into the world of the seedy underbelly of Christian theology. We are looking at another round of heretics. <laughs> and sorry, that's the uh, that's the best evil maniacal voice I've got. <coughs> Excuse me. If you'd like a better one than that, um, well, you'll have to do this. And so until you do that, then you're stuck with my evil heretical voice. And now my voice doesn't seem to want to work at all after being fine all morning. So there's that. In case you don't know, I'm Michael, and I am here today to tell you that if you attempt to make sense of God, you're going to fry your brain. Man, it's not good. It's good to try to make sense of God, but it is bad to try to make too much sense of God, and that statement will be made a little bit clearer as we work through this. So who are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about a group of people that have... Let's see, snuck isn't the right word, crept isn't the right word, <clears throat> functioned isn't even the right word in all honesty. When it comes to church history, we are going to look at a group that has tried to deny the Trinity and avoided making sense of it. We are going to look at modalists. <laughs> now, why modalists? Well, because these guys are fun. <sighs> The reason I say that is because they have a convoluted, bizarre, tentacling function in church history, uh, ultimately founded by, take your pick, uh, Noetus, Praxius, some dude named Heraclitus, uh, popularized by the guy named Sibelius, who eventually is going to end up being the namesake of this heresy known as what, modalism or even later on Sabellianism. If you travel through the ancient world, this is a heresy starting out somewhere in Greece. Typically, Smyrna gets the blame, credit. I don't know. Do you get the blame or the credit when you, when you begin a heresy afresh? Either way, starting around Smyrna, it migrates throughout the empire, settling in Rome where it creates all sorts of lovely problems and never, ever, and I mean ever, goes away. If you're a, a church history nerd, in which case, I'm sorry, but if you are a church history nerd, you know, you uh, no doubt know the story of Servetus, who was uh, executed by the Genevan Town Council. He was a modalist. He was a Sibelian. Even into modern American and really worldwide uh, theological groups. The Pentecostal movement has a split in the 20, early 20th century over the issue of modalism. The modern oneness Pentecostal denomination is in and of itself modalist, and a very famous uh, propri proprietor of that teaching is T.D. Jakes, who, no, I don't care what he said in the Elephant Room Conference, is still teaching in alignment with modalism. On a more fuzzy scale, the uh, singing group Phillips, Craig, and Dean has sort of, I guess we'll go with their renouncing of modalism and being able to affirm a orthodox Trinitarian theology. If, 
if you think the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is a robust Trinitarian doctrine, which there's, there's legitimately some, some debate about that. Now, beyond just that, this is not going to be fun, but it, it just needs to be said. I think the vast majority of modern evangelical Christians, if you like demanded twist their arm and, and made them write something down, would probably fall under the category of modalists. I mean, if you think about it, most of our bad analogies and descriptions of Trinitarian theology are modalist in nature. Uh, you've heard the ice cube, or not the ice cube one, the, uh, the water one. I can't even go with water. The, the molecules that make up water, however you want to call it. We have what? We have ice, we have vapor, and we have liquid. See, see three states of the existence of water, just like the three members of the Trinity. As Lutheran satire famously said, that's modalism, Patrick. And, and that's as good as it gets for the, uh, for the Irish accent there, despite my Irish heritage, which we won't get into right now. Why is it modalist? Because there is no water that is solid, liquid, and gas at the same time. In the Trinity, we have Father, Son, Spirit, distinct from one another, but all being the essence of God, all being divine in their nature. Before we get too far down that road, we have identified our problem. Well, our problems, we have named our problem, but let's actually figure out why it is a problem, and that is going to require us to go back into our church history. We're going to go back to our, uh, our old buddy here, Hippolytus, in his refutation of all heresies, which, give the man some credit, that is... That's some gumption to take up a task and say, what, what are you writing, hippie there? Well, I'm writing a refutation of all heresies, not some heresies, all heresies. And in book 10, chapter 23, he writes this. Noetus asserts that there is one Father and God of the universe, and that he made all things, and was, impe- and it was imperceptible to those that exist when he might so desire. So let's make sure we, we parse this as we go. So there is a Father and God of the universe who created everything, and if he doesn't want you to know about him, you won't. Noetus maintained that the Father then appeared when he wished, and he was invisible when he is not seen, but visible when he is seen. Okay. And this heretic, gotta love Hippolytus, pulling no punches there, also alleges that the Father is unbegotten when he is not generated, but begotten when he is born of a virgin. Did you catch it? There's your problem right there. He has conflated the Father and the Son. As also that he is not subject to suffering and is immortal when he does not suffer or die. When, however, his passion came upon him, Noetus allows that the Father suffers and dies. That's known as patripassionism, the father's suffering on behalf. doesn't exist. And the Noatians suppose that this father himself is called son and vice versa. In reference to the events which, are at, which at their own proper periods happen to them severally. Now, that, if you know your Trinitarian doctrine and you know your, your basic Christian theology, that just, like, flies off the page at you. And you're like, ah, no, get it away, get it away, get it away, get it away, get it away. If you don't, however, you're kind of like, um, okay, I, I have questions. And, and I get that. In a nutshell, <coughs> excuse me, what modalism seeks to do in all of its various forms is to streamline the Godhead. 
And so what usually happens is the argument is typically held under over one word, and it's persons. See, what the modalist typically wants is a manifestation, an appearance, or a showing of God rather than a person of God. And you can hear that as you're reading through this description of Noetus by Hippolytus. This heretic alleges that the father is unbegotten when he is not generated, so that this father God, when he is not acting as the son, is unbegotten, but begotten when he is born of a virgin, and also that he is not subject to suffering and is immortal when he does not suffer and die. When, however, his passion came upon him, this father himself is called son in reference to the event. So, the father is immortal and unbegotten, except when he shows himself or manifests himself as the son. He's still the same thing, or rather the same one. And so as the son then, he is begotten and he is suffering and he is dying. Now, logically, this should make your head hurt. Practically, though, it denies the different personages of the Trinity. Think through things like Revelation, where you have the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. So the son was eternally supposed to go to the cross, which means the son was always about that ministry. There's not just suddenly a pop in there, and then we've got that work. Now, in their defense, the modalists do an excellent job of nailing down God is one. They believe in one God. They are hyper-monotheists, in fact. And this is good. Deuteronomy 6, we get this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. But this is a denial of the persons, persons of the Trinity. Now, let's take a short little aside here because we want to make sure we cover this. No. Well, maybe I shouldn't say no. Eh, we'll go with it. No Christian loves the idea of defending the Trinity. And now that I've said that, you're going to find like 17 apologists and send them to me. Goes, look, look, he loves this. This is his favorite doctrine. He loves this. Most rational, normal, everyday Christians that have normal functioning brains, not these, you know, not these guys you know, the, the, with more brain cells than time type, you know, the ones we all read their books. Most of us do not love defending the Trinity because it's almost indefensible from a human perspective. Because from a human perspective, it does not make any sense. I'll never forget a, uh, a story related to, uh, relayed to me as a, as a church history student by my professor, uh, Dr. David Hogg. He was talking about a friend of his was being ordained as a Presbyterian and was going through the whole, you know, trial. Well, not trial, but the examination by the, the local, is it, a, is it a synod? It's a, no, it's a presbytery. There's, a, there, there's another name for it besides a presbytery. But anyway, he was going through that to see if he should be ordained and assigned. And in the midst of it, he was, he, uh, Dr. Hogg was telling us that this is one of those guys, you know, just like would think deeply on things for long periods of time. And he was in the midst of digging through, you know, tr the verses on the Trinity and trying to make sense of it and wrap his brain around it. And so when he got to the question about the affirmation of the three persons of the Trinity, Father is Son, uh, Father is God, Son is God, Spirit is God, Father is not the Son, Son is not the Spirit, Spirit is not the Father, and vice versa. He went into such this, such a long diatribe that everybody in the room, I mean, ordained pastors, people with master's degrees, people with PhDs are going, in the midst of all that, one of them stood up and said, I think we need to halt this ordination uh, inquiry and begin a heresy trial. 
<laughs> to which point the person who had put him up and was kind of sponsoring him was like, whoa, 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 stop, stop. Do you believe that God is one? Yes. Do you believe there are three persons? Yes. Shut up and sit down. That is what this doctrine can do to you because it doesn't make sense from a human perspective. And that's good because this is one of the supernatural proofs of Christianity. One is scripture, 1,600 years, 66 books, 40-plus authors, multiple continents, multiple languages telling one story. That's not something people pull off. We have a hard enough time keeping continuity in a two-hour movie that we actually edited ourselves, much less keeping that together with 40 authors over multiple languages and multiple cultures. God did that. But likewise, a deity that we invented would be easily, easily explainable. The fact that God is not easily explainable points to the fact that he is not invented, but that he is beyond us and outside of our rationale and our understanding. Now, when we say modalists are hyper-monotheists, this is good. The problem is they deny the clear understanding of Scripture. Things like Matthew 3. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In, in order to logically and consistently read that as a modalist, you have to have it be a parlor trick. There are not three persons there. There is one person showing himself in multiple ways. So he's not really descending, and he's not really speaking because he's actually being baptized. Or is he not really being baptized because he's actually speaking, or is he actually descending and not speaking? You see the problem. And before you say... And by the way, you'll also see this, um, go to Matthew 17 or any other gospel, and you can see this in the Transfiguration as well, where you have the Son being glorified and the Father speaking. But more than that, this is not just a New Testament invention. And the reason I can say that are things like Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So God is now enthroned. His vesture was like what was like the white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were in a burning fire, a river of fire flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat and the books were opened. So God is enthroned. Court is in session. And I kept looking because of the sound of the... Be uh, I just lost my spot. I kept... Yes. I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. That's early in the chapter. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given... I lost my spot again. Oh, wow. It's going to be one of those days. And given to the burning fire. As for the, Next time I have to go with bigger font. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, and extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations of men, and men of every nation might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That son of man is Christ. It is the Messiah standing before God, being presented with the glory, 
power and dominion of God. God cannot share that with a man. God cannot share that with anyone because it is God's and God's alone. Therefore, in order to wield that power, to possess that dominion, and to receive that glory and honor, you must be in and of yourself God. So this Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to be God, and he is in Christ. This is why our Trinitarian understanding, our hypostatic union of the Council of Chalcedon, our, our Nicene understanding of the same substance of the Father of this and the Son is so important because we have one God. We have a deity, which is so clearly communicated in Scripture throughout, but we have multiple persons, so we have to deal with that. And I think the best way to do that is through a Trinitarian understanding. This is what we lose with the modalists, is we lose a representative of God and man. We lose the representative because we have a confusing of the deity. We have a confusing of the roles of the deity in redemption. And we also have a confusion of the indwelling that we currently possess of the Holy Spirit because we no longer have a separate spirit doing the will of the Father, presenting us before the Son who presents us to the Father as clean by Him. Instead, we have a God that is manifesting rather than granting and being. And there's a difference between those two things. Now, finally, oh, the dreaded finally, dun, 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 dun. how do we deal with this? Why does this matter? Like, am I, am I just picking a nit? And the answer is no. We must have a separate person functioning in our redemption. This is clear in Scripture. This is needed for how redemption works, that someone represents us who also represents God. This is needed, and it must be separate from the impartial judge who is the Father who later grants that work to the Son. So starting point, who is the Son? Who is this Jesus? John 1. He is in the beginning, and he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. You know, I, I had those Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house, and they and they, they told me that the Greek there is, is all jacked up, and it doesn't actually say that because there's no definite article. Stop it. Short answer, the definite article is listed in the subject of the sentence. The subject of the sentence, therefore, carries that meaning throughout the sentence. When we lose the definite article, it is because it is a predicate nominative. It is a subject form in the predicate of the sentence as the object of the verb, and it therefore carries the same definite article as previously done. So while God, later on in the verse, does not have the definite article, it borrows the definite article from the previous point where it says God. Therefore, it is God. In other words, John is being as crystal clear as he can possibly be. The Word is God, and then he later on identifies that Word as Christ. Now, why does this identification matter? Because it points to the work that Christ ultimately does. Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, we have a presentation of two persons, one essence, one being of God, but two persons, not two manifestations, but two 
persons. If there aren't, then what incarnation is Jesus sitting next to? Who incarnation is Jesus sitting next to? Because it's not God if he is God alone. Think about that. This is what makes sense of Scripture for us. We don't like it, but it makes sense. Now, finally, am I just picking a giant nit? And the answer is no. No, I'm not. Colossians 1. He, talking about Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. This gets back to the necessity of the separate persons of the Father and the Son. If there are not separate persons, then the work of Christ on earth is a charade. He is not actually born. He is not actually human. He is merely pretending. He is also merely pretending to follow outside command. I know it's become a dirty little word because of the, uh, the NAR business, but there is a kenosis, a giving up, Philippians 2, of something in Christ. Now, what I think that is, is a giving up of what we call the independent function of his deity. So Christ submits to the will of the Father through the ministry of the Spirit. The Son is human as we are, and all, is, all, is tempted as we are in all ways, and yet without sin, as Hebrews 4 tells us. We know that this is good because he has accomplished it. We know that he is successful because the Father raised him up again. If there are not separate persons, then the person giving the command is the person following the command, is the person empowering the command. That is not temptation. That is not obedience. That is a farce and a charade in action. Jesus has the power of God because he is God, yes, but he is also man. He has given up some of that autonomy in the incarnation so that he could be as his people. This is why you have the temptations that you have from Satan. When you have the, uh, the, the three temptations, throw yourself off the temple, command the stones. What is he saying? Do not rely on the Father. Do not lean on the Spirit, but trust your own power. Could Christ have done those things? Yes, he could wield his power. He chose not to in obedience to the work of the Father, in reliance on the empowering of the Spirit as both an example and as an identification so that he could stand blameless in his humanity because he has accomplished all that the Father has sent him to do. The Father doesn't do these things. The Father is the judge and the arbiter. The Spirit does not do these things. He is the empowerer and the comforter. The Son is the one who does these things because he is our representative. This doctrine matters. And again, we may not like it because it's confusing, but we're stuck with it because this is who God is. Why do I say that? Because this is how he has presented himself to us. And our call as Christians is not to alter who God is, not to try and fit who God is into who we are, but to understand him as he has shown us and to worship him rightly in that regard. So what have we learned here today, children? God is one. There are three persons of God. 
and you cannot rationalize an understanding of an infinite God. Go ahead, try. I'm going to laugh when your brain melts out of your ears. and you're, You know, like when the Nazis open the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark and everybody just starts melting. That's what happens to your brain when you try to make sense of this. Now, this is not an exhaustive presentation. is isn't meant to be. It's meant to kind of give you uh, some encouragement to go study this on your own. There will be posted, not long after this goes up on Podbean, there will be posted on the... Uh, website, practicaltheologyministries.com, and our blog, a write-up on this that is a little bit more exhaustive with a little bit more cross-reference and explanation. That'll be good for you. You can check that out. You can also find other things on the website like past episodes, worship services at Calvary, where you're welcome to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030 in Rockford, Illinois, uh, 6286 Linden Road, if you're in the neighborhood, and you are gladly uh, welcome to worship with us at any point. Hopefully, newsletter going out next week. That'll be the plan and the goal, and we'll make up for not having April's out by giving you all that good stuff. New articles, fun, good stuff. Yay, fun will be had by all. It'll be good for you. So until we meet again or until I get more of that information out there, read your Bible. It'll do you good. God bless.